Welcome to the Derek Diamond Experience podcast, where every week I talk about the inner workings of the entertainment industry with those who have lived it and experienced it. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and this is episode 370 of the podcast, 30 episodes away from 400. I can't believe that we're approaching episode 400, not just that, but the 10-year anniversary of the podcast as well. But we've got plenty of time to worry about that um, in 2024. Thank you again to those who listened to last week's episode with voice actress Jen Taylor. Um, I know it was a, a bit of a departure from what we normally talk about on the podcast, but it still falls under the entertainment banner. And it was great getting to really just talk Halo with the voice of Cortana, you know, from a, a fan standpoint. But it was really cool to hear about, you know, some insight into the making of uh, one of the greatest video game franchises of all time. But for this week, we're going to be pivoting back to filmmaking with writer-director David Lieban. And David and I briefly met a couple of weeks ago when I attended the Spotlight International Film Festival in Jacksonville. And his feature film, Publisher Paris, which we're going to be, this is going to be the main point of discussion for this episode. Uh, it was showcased at the festival and it won the award for best feature film. So we get into kind of the inception of that idea, the process of making the film and just his background in general. And he's also a professor of film at the university of Colorado in Denver and the, the teaching parallels and the filmmaking parallels of his career uh, are intertwined in a, a pretty interesting way. And uh, it was great getting to talk with David and hopefully we get to you know, meet again um, at a film festival, or who knows, maybe we'll work together down the line. You never know what's going to happen in the crazy world of filmmaking. So without further ado, here is my conversation with David Lieban. Happy to be here with my very special guest this week, writer-director David Lieban. David, how are you, my friend? I am doing well. Thank you very much. Awesome. Well, so we, to give the listeners a little backstory, we briefly met at the Spotlight International Film Festival in Jacksonville a couple of weeks ago. And your your feature film, Publisher Parish, was one of the featured films at the festival. So as someone, you know, who had a feature presented there, how, how was that feeling like? You know, I was there as well with, with the, my short, The Feature, but how was it having a feature film be showcased at a festival? Um, you know, it was very rewarding. You know, we won Best Picture at that festival, which was nice. I was very happy about that. I was a little disappointed with the venue, frankly. You know, that I've, we've screened it at a, probably about, I don't know, 15 film festivals so far. And, you know, we didn't have a great turnout. It was in a room with chairs. It wasn't really a movie theater. So I was a little disappointed with the venue but the people who ran it were really nice and uh the and i met some great people there so it's always very you know fun to like have you know people you know like your work and appreciate what you've spent all that time doing so it was very fun and what i loved about going as well is that i want to say this was the first festival i've attended since COVID happened and I remember thinking, you know, during the height of the pandemic, I'm like, are, are festivals going to go away? Like, what's what's it going to be like? So it, it's good that they're still around because a lot of people ask me, are festivals really important? I personally think they are. One, you get to showcase your work. And two, you get to network with other filmmakers that you otherwise wouldn't have met. 
For sure. I mean, my last feature came out right around the time when COVID happened. And so I got into all these festivals and then they all shut down. And so, uh, you know, that was a disappointment because then they went to virtual festivals, which basically is like worthless. I, you don't, even if someone actually might have watched your movie, there's no feedback, there's no networking. It feels completely worthless. In fact, this time around when I was submitting to festivals, if it was an online festival, I just didn't even apply to it. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, but, you know, festivals are really great. Um, and I, you know, it's very rewarding if you have a good audience and they laugh in the right places and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but truthfully, the thing about festivals that is best is the networking and getting to meet other people that do what you do. And, you know, we kind of are all suffering the same, uh, you know, delusion of uh, we're going to be like famous filmmakers. And uh, yet we just are driven to make movies. And so you find like minded folks who who, um, you know, you can share war stories with and collaborate with. And, you know, I've I've met people that I definitely want to you know work with in the future. And so it's really fun. I got to ask, whenever your films are being played, are you focused more on the audience reaction? Um, you know, yes and no. Like I am watching the people. I know like the the moments where people gasp and people laugh. And so I kind of am watching them to see like, OK, here it comes. Here it comes. Big laugh. OK, it's okay, it worked, you know, so that kind of stuff feels great. Um, but I am a little bit of both. You know, I mean, I've seen the movie countless times because you know i was in the edit room and i've been to all these film festivals so uh you know i still enjoy the movie i am very proud of it um but i am really there to kind of you know publicize the movie and to see is it landing you know and, and that is a part of it that you know some of the creative types i think might struggle at times like you know the creative part is is great like it's what makes a movie a movie but there is that publicity there's the marketing there's the business side that yes. you know i've i've been learning about through you know friends of mine that have worked in film through this podcast because i was the same way you know i just wanted to write and maybe direct edit but there there's a whole nother side that you know i've i've been introduced to and it is it as glamorous no but it's just as important in my opinion what i have i mean like we're filmmakers right we're not we're not marketing people. It's a different right. breed. It's a different process. You know, we can make a couple of posts about our movie here and there, and that's not nothing, but you need like, this is the first film where we actually have a, um, a PR team and a, a marketing team. And like, they're taking it to another level, right? You know, they're reaching out to, you know, writers and they're reaching out to other podcasts and they're reaching out to, you know, to, you know, getting press releases and they're posting every single day and they're, creating a vibe you know it's it's really a different thing you know you know we'll see the results that we get right but um you know it's not you know in my last you know endeavors in uh, i did it all myself and it's hard to know the kind of impact you know maybe i got 300 people to look at it which you know is not nothing but you know if you're trying to recoup money for your investors 300 is not going to cut it you know <laughs> so yeah, it's it's all a learning process. You know, I've been there as well where I try to do everything on my own. But you, you got to find the right people and put them in the positions to succeed. And you'd be For surprised sure. how how much that helps. 
It really does. You know, you need to surround yourself with the people that know how to do these things. Absolutely. So let's backtrack a bit. What was it that initially made you want to become a filmmaker in the first place? Um, you know, I've always been much of a cinephile. You know, my, uh, my where I grew up, my mother was an artist. My dad was a professor. Uh, so we had a lot of I lived, grew up in New York City. And so I had a lot of exposure to theater and film. And my, my mother being an artist, we went to museums. And so art was very much an important thing in my in my upbringing. And so that was really, um, you know, great. Uh, and my parents loved the movies, so they would take me to the movies. And, you know, uh, so uh, I just became addicted to movies and watching and storytelling, right? And and then when I was a kid, I, I was probably like, I don't know, 11 or 12. And somebody who was a little older than me had made a animated movie. It was, uh, you know, the story is a guy comes downstairs and all the furniture is dancing to Stevie Wonder's superstition. And I was so impressed that this guy did this on his own with his, you know. And so I went home and used my dad's Super 8 camera and started playing around with animation. And, uh, you know, I started making movies with my friends. Uh, and then, you know, I just got hooked on it. And then Star Wars came out and that was that, right? So um, for me, that was really exciting. And then when I went to college, I studied film and, you know, and then now I'm a film professor and I make films. So, uh, you know, it's just been what I've wanted to do. And I've been very fortunate that I've been able to do it. You mentioned your parents going to the movies and you're taking you as a child. Do you remember the first movie you ever saw in the theater? Oh, I do not. Oh, I, you know, one of the earliest experiences I have, I do remember it was a drive-in and my, we were in Michigan and we, my, my parents had family in Detroit and so we went to see a double feature of Dr. Doolittle and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Nice. And we had like a station wagon and I was in the back seat. I watched Dr. Doolittle. I didn't make it through uh, 2001 though. <laughs> Granted, I was a child and I didn't, I probably didn't understand it. And uh, to this day, it's a challenging movie and, I, and I'm an adult. So <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's understandable. No, the, the drive-in experience is something that you know, I thought I would never get, but when COVID happened, you know, all the theaters were shut down. Well, at the fairgrounds here in Pensacola, there was a drive-in that would happen, you know, like on the weekends. And I got to see the original Star Wars in a drive-in. That's and, cool. And it was, yeah. it was pretty incredible. Very so, fun. So um, you said you went to college for film. So once you do that, then how do you, how do you start making your films? Um, you know, when I first got out of college, um, I started a small video production company. And so I was doing like industrial videos, commercials, weddings, anything that I could kind of get opportunity to use my abilities, right. And to get paid for it. So that was kind of where I started. Um, but then it turned out I didn't really like doing those kind of videos for other people. And I had ideas of my own. And so uh, knowing a little bit about academia from my dad, who was a math teacher at a university at a York College in New York City, um, I knew that uh, professors have an expectation that a percentage of their job is to be creative or to publish books or whatever it is that is your your thing. And so uh, for me, that was a. Uh, uh, I really enjoy teaching. And on top of it, it was an opportunity for me to make films, you know, so I was making a lot of shorts once I got, I got my first teaching gig and I just started making movies right from there. 
Um, I didn't make features until much later, but um, I made probably a, a short a year, you know, just to kind of keep myself going. That's interesting that your your teaching career is kind of running parallel to your yes. filmmaking career. I, I was curious about that because, you know, not to assume, but I was thinking, okay, well, you were a filmmaker first and then you decided to become a teacher. Do you find that the fact that the two kind of started around the same time, do you think the filmmaking side helped your teaching side and vice versa? You know, there, there's this uh, thing that people say, you know, for those who can't teach, right? And I resent that a great deal because those people have never tried to teach anything, right? Because if the best way to learn something is to try to teach it, because you got to dig in and know what you're talking about, right? So while I was making, I knew enough about cameras and I studied and I made things. And so I, I had the tech skills, you know, but, you know, I, um, it was one of those things that went in hand in hand. Like I consciously went into teaching to have a career and to get, a, you know, paid to have a job that I liked and loved. And so like uh, the fact that I was making movies was just a part of my job. It wasn't, they weren't separated. Right. And so, um, you know, as I got older and I had more and more experience and I was more confident in what I could do in my storytelling abilities, I really started digging into, you know, documentaries. And then I, once I kind of try to find my voice, I guess, you know, and like, um, so I, you know, my documentaries were, have like a little tongue in cheek, but they're pretty, um, you know, you know, they've done pretty well. I've got short ones and I've got feature length ones and, um, and then, uh, I, then I started moving into feature films and that was more recent, you know, so, um, you know, but that, that's kind of where I am, I'm at now. Right. And you bring up an interesting point because, uh, as something that I think I'm still struggling to do, or I guess maybe not struggling, but discovering is that finding your voice aspect as a filmmaker, because you don't really know until you actually do it. And the more you do it, the more you discover what that is. So that's, yeah. you know, again, I tell people that, you know, it, it's going to take you more than once to really kind of figure it out. And I mean, I, th I think we all are still learning to a degree. I mean, the way that I look at it is like, you know, I'm trying to find as far as reference, finding your voices, you know, I. I, sometimes I made documentaries out of convenience. Like I came across somebody who was like, oh, that person would be really interesting. Or, oh, this person is so, you know, charismatic. Let's do work with that person. Um, but when it came down to it, I started thinking about, well, what kind of movies do I like to go see? Like, what are the movies that inspire me? I want to do that. And so that's kind of how I started to find like my I've discovered my voice is that it's dark comedy. That's kind of what I enjoy the most, you know, laughing when you feel like you probably shouldn't laugh at this. That's, that's where I, I, that's what I like. And so, you know, I've done, a, I've done some really deep things too. I've done documentaries about, you know, survivors of sex, sex trafficking and the end of life phase, you know, so I've done a lot of different things, but like, I have to say when I've been in an audience showing a movie about death and dying and, you know, it's sad. Right. And then I'm sitting next to this other guy for the next movie and he made a comedy. Everybody's laughing and having a great time. It's like, I want to do that. I don't want to like down, make people down, you know? So that's kind of part of my reason for wanting to get into, you know, comedy. 
Well, and, and there's something to be said about making, in your case, documentaries about deeper subjects, because I do think they're important because they bring awareness, but they can be not just emotionally taxing on the audience. They can be emotionally taxing on those that make it because you're you're in it, like you're experiencing it in a way. So I, yeah. I, I totally understand. But I will say, though, like the one about death and dying, it was called Mortal Lessons. And um, and that one, um, I interviewed two women who were dying of, uh, you know, stage four cancer and nobody wanted to talk to them. Their own family didn't want to talk to them. You know, I'm not trying to bum out your audience here, but the reason right. I bring it up was that those people became teachers for me, not just about about life, you know, like they shared things with me that they couldn't share with their own families, you know, and so. I still am very moved and, and, you know, learned a lot, a lot about life and my own feelings about death. And I have children, like, how do I talk to them about death? So, you know, when I make a documentary, I typically would, I would say to people, like, I know just enough about the topic to begin my exploration. And by making the documentary is my research as far as finding out what the story is and what is the, the, the idea that I want to communicate. No, absolutely. And despite how, you know, depressing or dark the subject might be, if you take something away from it that makes you a better human being, then I think it's worth it. Yeah, for sure. So kind of going from that, talk to me about Publish or Perish. You know, we mentioned it at the beginning of the interview. What was the inception behind it? And can you talk to me about the, the process of getting it made? Yeah, I mean, it's a two and a half year process and I kind of still feel like I'm in it. Um, but um, the story is about a professor who accidentally kills one of his students on the day that he's trying to deliver his tenure dossier. And he doesn't want to let it impact his career, so he hides the body and then his life starts to spiral out of control. Excuse me. And um, so where did the idea come from is that I am a professor. I am a tenured professor at University of Colorado at Denver. I teach filmmaking and I teach uh, and I'm the chairman of the department. Uh, but while I was going through tenure, uh, I had these what if scenarios in my head, you know, because basically, if you don't know about tenure, like if you don't get tenure, you lose your job. Right. And so, you know, that upon hire that in seven years, you're going to be evaluated and you have to you know, be active, you have to produce work. If you write books, you have to write books, you have to make films, you make films, whatever your thing is, right? Uh, and so it's always on the back of your mind, even though I was being productive, you never know, because uh, professors can be you know, a, a bunch of curmudgeons, you know? And so these are the people that are gonna be judging you. And so like you have to be, you have to play nice with everybody all the time and you don't know how you're being perceived. So it's a very unnerving process. And so basically I I take that concept much too far in the movie as far as like, how does he respond to these things? And this guy is not responding to it very well and he's making a lot of really bad decisions uh, and it's impacting his life, his wife, his kid, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I watched the trailer right before we started the interview and it, it looks really fun. And in one of those that... You know, I use this analogy sometimes on the show, but I'm sure you as a filmmaker can get this too. When you're watching something, you can almost feel, I bet that was such a fun project to work on. Just from the vibe you get from the cast, the way that it looks. And I very much got that vibe 
from the trailer. And I, I can't wait to to watch the movie in its entirety. So uh, t- tell me about the, the process. Like, how, how long did it take you guys to shoot the film? So uh, we had about three months of pre-production. Um, and uh, then we shot it in 23 days. So uh, it was a SAG signatory. So we had, you know, all the you know, barriers and obstacles that one has to deal with when you work with SAG and it's not fun, but it's necessary, you know? Uh, um, but, um, yeah, you know, the hardest part about making the movie was, you know, finding the funding, you know, my last feature I kind of did through crowdfunding and personal funds, but I made a decent project that got distributed and that allowed me to, you know, present myself as a director of features. And so when I had this other screenplay that I wrote, um, and it was winning awards and it was, people were liking it. Uh, we did a, we did a, um, um, a proof of concept of our inciting incident. And so we had that, we had a poster, we had a pitch deck, we had my previous feature. And so we were using all this stuff and trying to get it, uh, funded. And, uh, then I met, a, a, my partner, Jonathan Miller, uh, who runs a very successful company uh, called Parsonex, and they do like investment management of, of that kind of thing. So because of the kind of world that he lives in, uh, he was able to raise that money to make the movie. And so that was once we got that green lit, then we were actually able to pay all of our crew, all of our cast. Uh, and when you're paying everybody, uh, they bring they bring their A game, you know, and I was also because I'm a professor of film, you know, in Denver, I'm pretty well connected to the people here, right? So some, my DP was a former student, my production designer and costume designer, former student, uh, you know, and these people are wildly talented, way past what I was able to ever teach them, right? I'm not a DP myself, you know, but I've done it well enough to communicate with him. And now he's like this really great DP. And he's, he was also, his name is Trevor Merchant. Uh, and he um, also was our colorist, Um and so we had some students working on it, former students, some colleagues, some peers. So, and we shot it at the University of Colorado Denver's campus. So 11 days of the 23 were in that space. Uh, so it was, um, you know, we surra- I surrounded myself with people that I trusted. I knew um, my lead actor, Timothy McCracken, I worked with him before. Uh, and so I kind of imagined him in that role from the get-go and he kind of helped me with casting. Uh, so it was really, um, a labor of love. And like you said earlier, like, because I surrounded myself with people I like, um, and I had kind of the freedom to make the movie I wanted to make, but Jonathan really gave me, you know, carte blanche to make my movie that I envisioned in my head. And the understanding all along was I was going to make the majority of the movie. He was going to learn from me because he's not a filmmaking guy in the past. This, This is his first film. And then on hindsight, I was going to learn from him the marketing and the business side of things because that's not my world typically either. And so he's running with it right now as far as like, you know, the marketing and the publicity part of it. That's sort of where he's like shining as well. So everybody had great ideas on set and some good editing I notes as well. So he's got a good sense of storytelling also. So, and, yeah. And that's great, too, because... I was curious as to whether or not you used like maybe some former students of yours or current ones that, or, you know, a, a lot of filmmaking is using the connections that you have. And with you being a professor, you obviously have quite a few. So that that's such a great story in and of itself that, you know, you're this professor, but you're also a filmmaker 
and some of your former students come together and you make this this really awesome project and you have your your partner who's kind of the other side of the coin that is good at what you're not and vice versa. So yes. it's, it's, it's really kind of, uh, you know, things just fall perfectly into place sometimes. And this sounds like one of those instances. It feels like a lightning strike, you know, like, I don't know if I'll ever, you know, this will ever happen again. You know, I've always been the filmmaker where like, you know, I'm loading all the stuff into the car and I'm the guy like setting the things up. This was the very first time where I arrived and like, there was a crew of people that were, putting the set together and putting make the actors were getting makeup already. Like it was, it was truly amazing, you know? And so it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't doing anything, but I mean, I didn't have to manage like gear and, and food or any of that stuff that was all being taken care of. So that was terrific. Yeah. And it, it's, it's like seeing all the cogs in the machine work together yes. to, to make the machine work. And I, totally. I'm, I'm sure as someone who came from doing the majority of things, to then having this awesome crew had to be, had to be such a gratifying feeling. It was, but you know, because I've done it all myself and I've been an indie filmmaker, I have a hard time really letting it go. Like I still was doing way more than I probably should have. You know, I wanted to get certain props. So I get the props I want, you know, I was involved in the casting. I was involved in, you know, you know, the trailer, like all of it, you know, the, I still have my finger on almost everything, but I'm, I'm also a producer of the movie. So, I mean, I feel like it's, it's part of my responsibility. Uh, but I, you know, I remember I was getting costumes and one of our leads who plays our antagonist, James Shanklin, he's like, David, you shouldn't be doing all this stuff. I'm like, well, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? You know, like, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. But I, I think it's good though, to still be involved to a degree and things like that, you know, cause oh, you, yeah. you, that's the fun part of filmmaking is there's so many different jobs that you may not even think of. Like you said, the costuming, hardly anyone initially thinks of the costuming, but it's such an important aspect of it. Oh my God. Not only, not just what they're going to wear. Okay. We're shooting in this location today. We're shooting four different scenes and they're on four different days. What costume are they going to wear? Like, I don't want to be thinking about that. You know, I yeah. want somebody else to manage that. And, and honestly, like, you know, I, I, in my previous films, you know, everyone wore the same thing all the time and it was conscious because I didn't have that kind of resource, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, mentioning, you know, that you were the, you said you produced, but you primarily, you were the writer and the director of this film yeah. was from the beginning when you began this journey of filmmaking, was that, ultimately your end goal to be a writer director or did you just want to yes. be in the business i mean it probably when i first got out of college i was just i just wanted a job in the business and you know but um i always wanted to be a, a director and a you know a storyteller like that to me you know i i never really envied you know i envied the fame and fortune of actors but i never really wanted to be an actor but like you know i had directors that i would be you know fanboys about you know and so that kind of thing uh yeah i definitely wanted to be a director for sure yeah. which directors are you a fanboy for oh it it changes a lot right uh but i'm a big fan of the cohen brothers yep. um uh you know i you know there's the obvious ones like james cameron and quentin tarantino and those guys but then i try when i when i talk about you know my favorites i tend to try to look at these independent filmmakers that i really admire uh that we don't think of and now greta you know gerwig you know is uh i liked her from ladybird right so like 
Uh, and now um, I also like Max Winkler. Um, I uh, what's the guy name? Um, you know, there's there's a handful of them. There's a uh, oh, the woman who did uh, Rat Catcher. Her name is Lindsay. I don't know. I'll have to remember what her, the movie was. You don't live. You're um, you were never really here. Let me see who that is. Um, I can't remember her name. I'm actually, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm looking it up too. Okay, good. Uh, Lynn Ramsey. Yes, Lynn Ramsey. That movie you were never really here. I just I love that movie, and you know, so I kind of like these oddball non. You know, I get tired of formulaic movies, right? So I really like movies where I'm surprised, and I'm very rarely surprised. So the movies that do that to me are the ones are the act the directors that I tend to kind of like follow. So. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I, I think I think we need more movies like that. Like you mentioned, not formulaic movies. I, yes. I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, once the, the strikes have concluded, that it results not just in, in fair pay for everyone, but that we get different types of movies. I honestly like to believe, like Mark Ruffalo made a statement about now this is the perfect time to start diving into independent film because yep. the machine of Hollywood does not allow for you and me to do our work because the money that we could potentially make, which would be could be a lot of money, is still like, you know, pocket change to these guys who have, you know, a $300 million, $300 million film. You know, like we're not playing in the same ballpark. And so like the amount of money that our film could generate is not interesting to them. So that being said, if you made $5 million on a movie, that'd be like, you know, terrific, you know, and that's a lot of money. So why not, if you have 10 of those versus one $300 million film and all those films have a unique voice and vision, far more interesting. So I'm kind of hoping that what happens because of the strikes, you know, both for writers and actors may kind of, you know, spark this sort of change. I could hope at least, but I don't know if it will. <laughs> yeah, we'll just uh, we'll just have to wait and see. But, yes. Yeah, but um, as we start to wrap up here, I, I did want to ask you what's the what's the biggest lesson that you learned uh, as a writer director from making Publisher Parish? The biggest lesson. Let me think. Um, trust your gut. Um, I would also say, you know, there's there's logistical things that I would certainly be aware of, right? As far as the grandiose things is that, you know, tell the stories that you want to tell, you know, um, and the, they'll be more engaging and truthful, right? It's, you know, don't be making the movies that you think people want you to tell, right? You know, be honest about that. You know, when you write your first draft of a script, you can't be worrying about how people are going to think about it because that's going to inhibit what it is you're trying to do, right? So that would be one of the main things. And as far as logistically, we shot our film in um, the winter. So our days got dark by 4.30 and it was freezing cold in Colorado where we shot it. So uh, I would definitely not shoot in the winter again, <laughs> um, especially if you have a lot of exteriors. And uh, we shot during COVID as well. So that was uh, that was a joy. You know, we had a COVID safety officer and we all got tested and uh, that was a challenge, but we really didn't have a choice about that. Uh, so there was a lot of things that you learn all the time. But uh, the other thing I would say is like really respect your cast and crew, you know, like treat them humanely, 
there's no reason to yell at people or anyone to like get thrown downstairs so you get the right kind of performance. You know, you hear these stories about people doing that. And it's just not necessary, right? Actors should know how to act without throwing them down a staircase or yelling at them. Uh, it is a high tense, it's a tense situation. So people lose their cools and there's a lot of dramatic things going on behind the set. And I try to kind of keep myself out of that. I'm aware of it, that it's happening, but like, I don't want to know about it because it really disrupts my process. And so you need some, I would recommend having somebody like, you know, have your AD be the buffer so that you don't have to like, you know, that guy's mad at that guy and he wants to go home because I don't want to know any of it. Like I'm going to, you know, so that kind of thing I would try to navigate differently as well. No, you're absolutely right. No, I totally agree yeah. with all of that. Uh, so where can people watch, watch Publisher Parish? It's going to be on uh, Amazon, Vudu, and On Demand and on different cable channels as of August 18th. Um, if they want to, if, you know, depending on when they uh, hear this, uh, we have a website, it's publishorperish.movie, and uh, you can always go there and you'll see where there'll be a link to where to get the movie and or to get a link to where you can see it. And going off on that note, you mentioned the website. Do you have any social media that you'd like to plug so the viewers and listeners can follow you? Um, I guess, uh, you know, we're on Instagram of Publish or Perish Movie um, and uh, Facebook. We're there, too. And so we're all of those places. But um yeah, that's I have my own site. If you want to know more about what I do, uh, my site is tinyfistfilms.com. So that's where uh, you can see some examples of my documentaries and short films I did as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to have this chat. This was great. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you again to David Lieban for that fantastic conversation. Don't forget to follow Publisher Parish on Instagram. The link is in the show notes. And this upcoming Friday, August 18th, you'll be able to watch Publisher Parish on Amazon. And I'll include the links to the website uh, in the show notes as well. For next week's episode, I'm going to be chatting with actor and filmmaker Jonathan Gorman. And we had just an amazing conversation, not just about film, but life in general. And he's going to be talking about um, his new book, which is kind of a parallel with life, movies, and honestly, how you can compare the two. Um, it's, a, it's a really fascinating conversation and one of my favorites that I've had on the show in quite some time. So definitely come back and check out that fun episode. But until then, you can check out past episodes of the podcast. Just head over to linktree.com slash ddiamondpodcast for everything Derek Diamond Experience related. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, if you want to subscribe to the YouTube channel, follow me on social media. Everything is in one convenient location, linktree.com slash ddiamondpodcast. And if you could, please leave a review for the podcast, whether it's Apple Podcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, it's really helpful for uh, podcasts for to get more ratings and reviews because the more you get, the more visible the show is to those who are searching for, in this instance, entertainment podcasts. So it takes a minute of your time and it doesn't cost anything. So if you could do that, I would very much appreciate it. But that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you once again to David Lieban, and we'll see you guys back here next Monday for another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast. Yeah.